Our second speaker today is Helen Innes, who is Associate Professor at the Australian National University School of Art in Canberra and a um, very highly acclaimed author and curator. And she's talking about the Australian photographer Charles Bayliss and his activities in the New World. So thank you, Helen. Thank you. Thanks uh, for the invitation to speak on Charles Bayliss in relation to the Archer exhibition. Uh, and uh, congratulations too to Francoise and to Judy for the exhibition because it is fantastic. It's real coup for the Art Gallery of New South Wales. My thanks too to the team of Shona White for organising our travel and getting us up here so comfortably. So it presents a wonderful opportunity to think more about Eugene Archer and uh, as Francoise has already spoken about him, but also about Charles Bayliss, the Australian photographer, who I've actually been thinking about differently just because of this juxtaposition. Their ages alone are revealing. I had assumed that Archer was the older when I had looked at the photographs of them together, but in fact uh, he was born in 1857, so he was seven years younger than Bayliss, and it kind of turns that um, relationship between them on, uh, for me anyway, on their head. This is by Charles Bayliss, Middlehead, 1874. And I'm just going to show you a uh, portrait of Bayliss. He's the one there with the hat, with the Charlie Chaplin um, fellow behind him. So what can I tell you then first about this man, the Australian photographer Charles Bayliss? In biographical terms, not a great deal. According to his erstwhile biographer, photo historian Keith Burke, and I quote, our first word of Charles Bayliss goes back to 1854, when we hear of him as a child of four, with his parents disembarking at Melbourne from a sailing ship. His birthplace had been in Hadley, near Ipswich in Suffolk. Let's pause right here, because these few facts enable me to make the first point in my argument about Bayliss's claim to the new world, the modern world. English writer John Berger argues that migration, whether chosen or forced, is the quintessential experience of modernity. Charles Bayliss was a migrant, having already travelled halfway around the world, Burke tells us, at the age of four. He was a migrant and he was well-travelled. Here is Jack Cato now, building on Burke's biographical foundations for his own account of Bayliss in his book, The Story of the Camera in Australia, which is effectively our first history of photography. Cato writes that Bayliss's encounter with the travelling photographer Beaufort Merlin was decisive. And I quote, One day when he, that's Charles Bayliss, had just turned 16, he was actually more likely to have been 19 or 20 at the time, Beaufort and Merlin drove his caravan to their home in a Melbourne suburb to photograph the family group. Young Charles fell under the spell of the camera from that moment. Merlin needed an assistant, but it was only after long discussions that his mother gave her consent for Charles to join him in a tour of the goldfields of Gippsland. When they returned a year later, Charles was bursting with enthusiasm for the outdoor life, enthralled to the magic of photography and devoted to his chief. So it means then, in his late teens, Bayliss was already out on the road with the fabulously named employer and mentor Beaufort Merlin, founder of the American and Australasian Photographic Company. That's their uh, building that you see here. 
So after touring the Victorian goldfields and apparently checking back in with his mum in Melbourne, Bayliss and Merlin then set off for Sydney, photographing in the New South Wales towns of Yass, Braidwood, Queenbee and Goulburn and Parramatta on their way. By 1870, the itinerant photographers ceased their travels for a time and set up a studio in Sydney. But by 1872, they were on the move again, relocating to the gold-rich town of Hillend uh, in New South Wales. And this carte de visite was taken in the nearby town of Golgong, one of the few and perhaps even the earliest photographs signed by Charles Bayliss, his initials uh, are there. Now, it was in Hill End that the two photographers met the German-born entrepreneur B.O. Holterman, who became their patron and collaborator. Holterman was associated with the Star of Hope Mining Company, which extracted an enormous uh, gold nugget from the Tambarua area in 1872, which gave him the funds to underwrite his photographic and entrepreneurial activities. After Merlin's death in 1873, Bayliss continued with his photographic career, travelling to Victoria a year later, where he made panoramas in Stahl, Ballarat and Melbourne. However, more importantly for our purposes today, he was back in Sydney by May 1875, three years, in fact, before Archer first moved to Paris. So by then, the 25-year-old Bayliss had already uh, several years of travel and experience behind him. Now, this is my third point about his modernity. So not only was he a migrant and a traveller with an enlarged sense of the world, and by that I mean that he has a cosmopolitan sense because he's crossed the globe, but he's also travelled very intensively through New South Wales and Victoria. But he elected to become a city dweller, so that's the third point about his modernity. And Sydney was where Bayliss chose to live and work, and where he remained until his sudden death in 1897, just about the time that Archer was really consolidating his career in Paris. So Bayliss opened his own studio on George Street in downtown Sydney in 1876, married Miss Sarah Christiana Salia in 1883, and then he lived with his family at Petersham until his death. I'm just showing you a detail now from um, the panorama in the National Galleries collection. So this is Bayliss uh, working in Sydney in 1875, Darling Point and Rushcutters Bay with the policeman's cottage in the foreground. So of all those who photographed the fast-growing metropolis in the last quarter of the 19th century, Bayliss was, in my view, the one who knew it best. His pictorial engagement with Sydney spanned 20 years and encompassed both macro and micro views of the city, its architecture and the activities that took place in it. It seems to me that he loved the place where he chose to settle, displaying a photographic bond with a metropolis that's peculiar to Sydney and that was reiterated by Harold Casno in the early 20th century. And this is Casno's uh, cabbies, Bridge Street, 1904. It's in the uh, collection here. And subsequently by Max Dupain. Uh, this is his view of Sydney from a Harbour Bridge pylon from 1938. And David Moore, his moody image uh, of Surrey Hills from 1948, also in the uh, Gove New South Wales collection. In Australia, no other capital cities have attracted the same degree of photographic engagement. But back to Bayliss and one of the most prized events in Australian photographic history so far as the uh, cities involved, because it centres on this, the purpose-built 27-metre tower that Holterman had constructed at his mansion at St Leonard's 
to provide extensive views of Sydney and suburbs. It's not a great photograph, but at least you get a view there of, of the tower. So what happened in the room at the top of it marked the culmination of Holterman's patronage of photography. Because up there, Bayliss and Holterman worked together to expose enormous glass plate negatives. And the largest were uh, about a metre by um, 1.5 metres. So each weighed uh, 16 kilograms. Would have been quite an effort getting them up the stairs and back down again. Uh, but from these, they created a huge panorama that was subsequently dispatched to international exhibitions in Philadelphia and Paris. Unfortunately, that panorama never returned to Australia, but um, its whereabouts are still unknown. If, if any of you manage to find it, it will be like discovering the Holy Grail. <laughs> but some of the huge glass plate negatives, they're called mammoth plate negs, uh, the biggest made in the world at the time, are here in Sydney at the Mitchell Library. And another version of the panorama uh, taken uh, from the, the tower, is in, uh, but made from smaller negatives, is in the uh, collection of the National Gallery, and it's one of the treasures there. It's formed from 23 photographs. I can't show you the panoramas themselves, but do go online because then you can zoom in and, and look at them in, in detail. So that, there it's on the priority list of items to be removed if Lake Burley Griffin floods the gallery in a 100-year event. Now, a smaller event of the panorama is here in the Art Gallery of New South Wales collection. So Holterman's idea to construct the tower in order to produce an enormous panorama was inspired. I think it's still impressive today in its audacity and ambition, testament to his entrepreneurial and political objectives, which were to encourage free settlers to migrate to and invest in the colony of New South Wales. But the tower and the panoramas produced there, I would argue, uh, meant something quite different to Bayliss because they helped define his relationship with the city of Sydney. Climbing that tower gave him a privileged and unique vantage point from which to photograph. It facilitated a macro view of the city that few others could access at the time, either physically or imaginatively. The only ex exception would have been if you went up in a hot air balloon, and I understand the first hot air balloon went up over Sydney in 1858. So, of course, the um, high vantage point is a trope of modernist photography in the early 20th century. Think, for example, of Maholi Naji's shot from the radio tower in Berlin in 1928, or Wolfgang Sievers here uh, photographing old Frankfurt before its destruction in World War II. This is from 1937, where he climbed up the steeple of the church located opposite. And we've gone higher still with the views of Sydney available from Centrepoint Tower or even more spectacularly and more prosaically from a seat in an aeroplane. But for Bayliss in 1875, that tower was as high as you could get. The young photographer had already demonstrated his thirst for high vantage points in work undertaken in Victoria and would continue to do so after his collaboration with Holtermid had ended. In 1878, he climbed to the top of the centre dome of the Sydney International Exhibition Building, known as the Garden Palace, which Catherine de Lorenzo is going to talk about, to make another 360-degree panorama of Sydney, uh, which is in the uh, National Library's collection. It was much admired by his uh, contemporaries. The Sydney Press reported that it was the best panorama of Sydney we've ever seen, the cleverest work that for a very long time has issued from a, a colonial gallery. So Bayliss continued to climb as high as he could 
uh, right till his death, in fact. This is, photograph comes from that year, from 1897. So while Bayliss knew Sydney well from uh, various elevated perspectives, he also knew it more intimately, working at street level. And at this point, it's necessary to distinguish between two modes of practice, the documentation uh, that he undertook, especially of buildings on one hand, and then on the other, the creation of more picturesque views of, of Sydney, especially around the harbour. So I think of these uh, photographs documenting the individual buildings or architectural elements as his microviews, because their focus is so selective and exclusive. Now, this is taken before 1878, and I mean, I think it's an absolutely fabulous image. It's of the commercial bank building. You can see there the, the kind of twist that he has in his composition. I think um, given the pairing with Arche, it's important too to note that the buildings that uh, uh, the Bayless was photographing are new, and they're emblems, of course, of, of civilization as, as they, uh, the settlers saw it at the time. So that Bayless's photography is engaging with the present and the very recent, uh, not with the past. Another example of a micro view then is the Sydney Technical College, the exterior. So in these you see this real resoluteness and confidence about the position he assumes, with the exterior facade being the centre of his attention. There's no incidental details in these micro views of buildings. Not only did he photograph them from the outside, but he also uh, took outstanding interior shots as well. These uh, two that I'm going to show you are both of the Garden Palace, taken around the time of its completion. I'm sure you know it burned down a couple of years later. One interior view there, and then looking up into the dome uh, uh, in this one. So this is to do with the documentation of buildings, but then the picturesque views uh, form that second mode of, para of practice, uh, this is Sydney Harbour with the Macbeth boat builder in the foreground and Fort Denison in the distance and then Roundtree's floating dock, 1875. This is also in this collection. The picturesque views then bring me to my next point. I've dwelt um, till now on Bayliss's materialist take on the city. That is the way he deals with its physical form, focusing on the buildings, mostly civic and commercial, that are fashioned out of bricks, stone, mortar. But the city represents more than that to him. He photographed other areas that were also integral to the experience of modern city life, and crucially that provided sites for leisure and aesthetic contemplation. The Botanic Gardens, for example, where he took an exceptional group of images. This is an example of the Winding Path. And this, in uh, the gardens, the Alan Cunningham Memorial in memory of the English botanist uh, and explorer that had been erected just a, a couple of decades earlier. But I think it's a wonderful uh, example of his visual uh, acuity, a really simple image, but just by locating the memorial off-centre in that composition, he achieves such a lot of dynamism. And then this... A view made between 1875 and 78, it's about leisure, certainly, but it's also impressive in terms of its visual poetry and its effective capacity. It's the most languid image uh, that I've come across in all my years of looking at 19th century Australian photographs. 
He went further afield uh, to Middlehead, for instance, where modern citizens are depicted at their leisure among the fortifications built to repel any invasion from the sea. This, I think, encapsulates his uh, wonderful and distinctive sense of space, which I have uh, considered elsewhere, just to show you the detail then of the citizens um, taking in the view. So I've spoken about what Baylis photographed in and around the city of Sydney over a 20-year period, at different times of the year and the day. Uh, oh, this is just another example then of leisure, the public works um, contractors' picnic, uh, all assembled there for a photograph, again with that amazing sense of space that he achieves. So uh, back to Sydney and St Paul's College, Sydney University. So sometimes with the scenes deserted, obviously a very picturesque view, then other times the streets filled with people, George Street, 1pm, and inside too, aspects of uh, modern life, uh, the hospital, a commissioned photograph. So La Perouse Monument... These photographs were, of course, produced with a market in mind. He's like Archer that way. He's earning his living from his practice. They provided settler culture with confident, reassuring images of the enormous gains made in less than 100 years of European settlement. And they were sold by Bayliss from his George Street studio. It's important to note, though, that the photographs of the city go hand in hand. I think they're inextricably intertwined with the, his photographs of nature, uh, in particular the areas around the Hawkesbury and the Blue Mountains that had also been successfully colonised. Original Aboriginal communities had been decimated and displaced, and so their land too was brought into the ambit of the urban-dwelling tourist. There's a word for this, and it's a word you, not get, you don't get to say very often. Uh, I think it's quite spectacular, but it's vertiginous, because uh, you look where he's standing there, and that whole sense of being uh, tipped right over the, uh, the edge there. Now, it made me realise, looking at the Arche show, that he always tells you where he's standing. His images are so grounded, you know, there's the cobbled streets, the positioning on the roads and the streets, the footpaths and that. It's very different to Bayless getting up high and looking across and that, but also the kinds of positions that he occupies within his compositions. So I want to conclude by making a point that is more particular to Bayless himself rather than uh, being about his audience or his time. And I said earlier that he loved Sydney and knew it intimately. And those, in fact, are the key words, this love and intimacy in relation to the city. Because this is where his photographic process and the technology he used are all important. They were the means by which he came to know the city so well, to inhabit it physically, pictorially. And I've only really realised this by going back to Bayliss's work in the last few weeks emotionally. So I can argue this best, I think, with reference to an anecdote as an analogy and as my um, conclusion. Once I travelled through Europe with a friend who was a painter and who, in the galleries that we visited, made drawings of the paintings that most interested him. This meant that on later visits to the same galleries, the paintings that he had sketched were the ones that leapt to the fore, that immediately were already better known than those around them. And that's how I think of Bayliss's relationship to his home city, was shaped and enlivened by the photographs that he had made of it. Just think for a moment then 
as he moved through the city on his pony. We know that he rode a pony from Petersham into uh, George Street or moved about the city on foot, that he would have been hyper aware of all those spots where he had chosen to take a photograph, where he had stopped, set up his camera on his tripod and under the dark cloth that was a necessary tool of the trade, composed his image upside down on the ground glass. So thus, it means that Bayless, like Eugene Archer on the other side of the world, came to know his home city both as place and as photograph. The difference was that the photographs Bayless made were not of an old world being irrevocably changed, but as he saw it, a new world whose construction he both identified with and celebrated. Thank you. Thank you.